Hello, I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. When an architect or art restorer works on a dilapidated building or a damaged painting, they can take two approaches to authenticity. They can use materials and techniques that match those of the project but disguise their interventions. An art restorer can sculpt marble from the same quarry as the original with tools contemporary to its creation, guided by their knowledge of other depictions of the same saint or hero. They can invite the public to view the restored work as if unchanged from its first creation. Or they can make use of modern tools and make their changes clear. An architect can carefully assess the structural stability of a ruin, making interventions in steel and concrete that boldly contrast past and present. In many cases, they will use a mix of these approaches. Where they can, they will hide their interventions, and where they must, they will intervene boldly and visibly. Railway engineers use both approaches as well when intervening in a landscape. They aim to be as unobtrusive as possible, Good infrastructure will impact minimally on the environment and on our enjoyment of nature. This is why so much of the high-speed two route has been built in tunnels. They are the ultimate in unobtrusive engineering. For some stretches of the route though, hills and valleys are too steep for trains and the landscape or ground conditions are not suitable for tunneling. In these areas where elevated sections of the line are needed, it's difficult for the infrastructure to go unnoticed. But there is another option available to the engineers and architects working on HS2. They can make their interventions bold. And of course, we are talking about the bridges of HS2. The Colne Valley Regional Park is a mosaic of farmland, woodland and water. It's one of the first expanses of countryside to the west of London, with more than 200 kilometres of rivers, canals and more than 60 lakes. And although it is called a valley, the impression when you're standing in the landscape is of a low, flat stretch of nature dotted with small villages and lakes. And this environment is sensitive, but it precludes tunneling. So to preserve the landscape as much as possible while making their intervention both explicit and aesthetically appealing, HS2's engineers and architects decided to make this the site of HS2's largest viaduct. This structure will stretch 3.4 kilometers, with some spans of the viaduct stretching as much as 80 meters and the track will sit at a height of 10 to 15 metres above ground. This offers an interesting challenge, rather specific to the Colne Valley environment. I'm Billy Alawalia, Major to Senior Project Manager for the Colne Valley Viaduct. So the bridge industry has evolved from being purely a functional provision of bridges and has started to consider the location and the site context of where these bridges need to be put in place. Clearly, 
Bridges are now being designed and being constructed by bridge engineers who understand bridges. Victorian bridge engineers did not have all the tools and techniques that we do today. Development in material technology and our understanding of structural behaviour allows for a more efficient design. The massive brick arch viaducts that we see over much of Britain's railway network are at the same time both over-engineered using more materials than are needed, but they are also insufficient for modern rail. In many ways, they use the same techniques as the Romans. It's learning process that has happened and the industry has evolved. Functional, in the case of Corn Valley, we had teams that assisted HS2 in determining what we shouldn't have and what would look right. That's been developed to the point where we have an integral and integrated design within the site context, and that includes the form. In design, there is often a trade-off between form and function. Big and bulky is often strong, but ugly. Sleek and minimalist can be weak and small. And the viaduct design team had a lot of obstacles to cross. Large, uh, long-length lakes, where the span lengths between these port structures have been opened up to provide wider visitor views. By opening up the spans, the deck becomes deeper, but using the methodology of precast segmental and post-tension structures, we can minimise that as well. The design of the viaduct sits within a broader design vision for HS2. This is David Smith, High Speed 2's lead bridge and viaduct engineer. We're committed to good design, and good design being not just about function, but particularly form and context. And the, the design vision means that Every, every structure has to, be, has to be thought about in its own context. So whilst from an efficiency point of view you want to try and standardise things and, and use the same sort of components, just because something is standard doesn't mean that it's box standard. It doesn't mean that it's low, low value. I mean, you know, we've, we've all got smartphones and they're all very, very, very similar and they're quite standard, but um, they're not poor quality, are they? And it's, it's that sort of thing. We, we want to get the right quality in the right place. One of the things we also did in HS2 was, and I think this is a first in, in the UK, is that we, in our tender requirements for the design and build mainworks contractors, we said that no bridge designs can be done without an architect being in the team as well. So we, we specifically asked our tendering organisations to include and name engineers and architects together. There are lots of architectural regrets within the construction industry and HS2 is trying not to repeat mistakes of the past. Instead, it will leave a visual legacy. So not just designing something that is economic to build, quick to put in place, but actually looks very, very functional for the rest of its life, um, but something that is uh, that will stand the test of time and something that will become like the Victorian brick arch viaducts that people look back from the 100, 100 odd years last time we built sort of proper railways north of um, north of London. Um, people look back very fondly with, with that and we should, um, we should be striving and we are striving to make people feel proud of, uh, of the designs that we're developing now in the, in the 21st century.
Laura Kidd is HS2's head of architecture, and in particular, she's had a lot of involvement in the stations and on the bridge structures. Right at the beginning, we realised that this was going to be a major, probably the viaduct of the project. Knight Architects, supported by engineers from Atkins, was appointed to develop a design concept and vision for the Colne Valley. And they came up with a great idea. It took a while, but the idea, because you've got the vegetation, then you've got the ground, and then you've got the vegetation, and it's like how the language would change as you went through what is actually kilometres of um, the brew. So the idea was that the skipping stone... So the idea was that you'd be walking and planting your feet firmly on the ground, but when you got to the water, it would turn to the skipping stone and the arches as the stone skipped over the water, and then when it landed again, you went more into the more solid viaduct structure. Some landscapes do lend themselves to bold interventions. You have Norman Foster's Malau viaduct that floats in the clouds hundreds of metres above the mountainous Tarn Valley. The rolling hills of southern England invited a slightly different approach. Our difficulty with is HS2 is that most of our viaducts are quite low to the ground. And that is a real design challenge to try and not make them look too stumpy. So, you know, when you see a viaduct, usually you've got this huge elegance because it's way up high. You look at the Victorian viaducts and you're going from, you know, hillside to hillside, these wonderful sweeps of arches. We don't really get that opportunity because we're, we're sitting really close to the ground. We're not high up in the air. So to actually design something that looks good in that, in that way, architecturally good, is a really big challenge. And on the whole, the project's not done it too badly at all. The cost of doing the job is way more expensive up front, but it offers the chance to improve the landscape rather than just disrupting it. The design of the viaduct also recognises that as well, in that there are some elements, you know, the, the bits over the water bodies with the, with the triangular F-shaped pier sections. Those are, those are more complicated to design, they're more complicated to build, they are inevitably more expensive, but they are right for that particular context. We could have designed a viaduct that had those sort of forms everywhere, but we chose to only use those forms of deck um, where they were um, essential over the water bodies where there were going to be wide views, not, not so much sort of um, vegetation cover. And away from those areas, we can, we can change the design so that it is slightly more economic, but still being able to use the same technology, same construction technology, the same, um, you know, the same design. First and foremost, any viaduct must be robust. In Colne Valley, there are some very specific motives for designing it to require as little maintenance as possible. Part of my role in the chief engineers team is to write and look after the technical standards for bridges um, in my discipline. These standards are the rules the design team must follow when generating the design. And there are a number of things that are different for, for high-speed rail, and there are a number of things that are different for HS2 in particular. HS2 has ambitious goals for train frequency. 
that means that your maintenance window uh, for, you know, for doing routine maintenance on, on bridges or any of the infrastructure is, is very, very small. So we've developed and enhanced our technical standards for durability, materials and durability, to try and address that so that we, so that we can try and get lower, um, yeah, lower maintenance structures. The goal is to keep maintenance requirements very small, smaller than a typical railway might have. All bridges are designed for 120 years. They will require some maintenance during that time, but we want to look at sort of best details so that we can learn the lessons from, from things that have gone wrong or where we've spent a lot of time as, as the UK repairing bridges. So we're yeah we're we're looking at new ways to um, to develop um, to develop the standards to develop the specifications. One particular aspect in the UK is that there has been a moratorium on um, on the use of precast segmental construction, which is used throughout the rest of the world. But there's been a moratorium since almost the start of my career in the early 90s, and that stems from some failures um, that we found in the UK between the joints uh, in the joints between precast segments. And one of the things I'm really passionate about for anything that I get out of HS2 is to, is to move the UK forward to, to allow that form of construction again. That's the form of construction that we're using for Colm Valley. And we, I specifically wrote some additional prescriptive requirements in our technical standards to address some of the shortcomings or the perceived shortcomings of that form of construction so that we can, uh, yeah, we, we can use it going forward. This moratorium has been in place for nearly 40 years. Aside from fulfilling the requirements of an efficient railway and its aesthetic duty, if the Colne Valley Viaduct can show that this type of construction can be robust, it has the chance to give the sector faith in a very effective methodology. The viaduct is formed of 56 concrete piers, each weighing around 370 tonnes. And they are cast in situ with a special framework. And they will support the deck segments. And each pier sits on concrete piles that penetrate into the ground 55 metres. 1,000 concrete deck segments will be cast on site and then put in place by a 700-ton, 150-metre-long piece of equipment called a launching girder. The launching girder uh, has been designed in 2005 for one project in Hong Kong. For its first job in Hong Kong on the Chuang Mong Cheklap Kok project, the launch girder had been nicknamed Red Dragon. It then went to work on two other projects in Hong Kong and Singapore before being shipped to the UK and renamed Dominique. It is the only launcher of its kind in the UK. It's a big crane, made horizontal crane. The launching girder lifts the loads using a trolley and a hoist mounted on a steel lattice beam, like that that you see on a tower crane, and it extends out from support points on the working pier. And as the girder installs span segments, it is then moved forward onto new supports and moves on to the next segment. With the newly approved pre-cast concrete segments in place, they then just need to survive the next 120 years. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that 
after 120 years, the structure will fall down. <laughs> but what it means is it, sh it should be serviceable over that period of time. But serviceable doesn't mean that you can build it and then forget about it for 120 years either. So you still do need to maintain it. You still need to inspect it regularly um, and just make sure that it's behaving and operating the way that you want it to. When the deck segments are placed, they are then fixed to the piers and the other deck segments. And concrete is strong in compression, which is why we use it in foundations. But it does lack tensile strength. And this means when it's stretched between points, like on the spans of a bridge, it must be tensioned. And steel rope is run through the concrete and tightened at each end. And this improves its tensile strength. And this can be done as the concrete is cast, pre-tensioning, or afterwards. You are using what you call a post-tensioning cable? In post-tensioning, the steel cables are run through channels in the cast concrete, joined and then tightened. The cables are susceptible to corrosion if water gets into these channels, and that introduces a risk which must be guarded against if the bridge has to last for more than a century. And when we think about risk, you always consider two key measures, the severity of the risk and its probability. Severity considers what will happen if a failure occurs. Will someone stub their toe or will they be killed? Will a structure need repair or will it fail? Probability of failure is measured in terms of performance levels. And performance levels are defined by the likelihood of a failure that may affect safety per hour of operation. Now, to ensure the bridge's durability, HS2 was chosen to set a higher performance level than normal for the joins between tensioning cables, bridge segments and piers. For durability point of view, you are using the, what you call PL3, Protection Level 3. This required Volker vessels, who were one of the members of the Align joint venture who were building the viaduct, to adopt new techniques to achieve PL3 on these vital joints. At the point where the spans meet the piers, understanding compression in concrete is again vital. But as David shares, the engineers also considered aesthetics. Generally, we have central piers um, and then the, the deck is formed with, with balanced segments either side of it so that we have one, one pier with a, with a deck between the piers. Eventually, you need to get to a, a you need to create a fixed point so that all of the thermal loads that the, that the bridge will attract inevitably can get transferred into the into the ground. To do that in one pier means that the pier will be very very big and probably quite ugly, or, or certainly harder to make get a pier attractive. So it's more um, efficient and better looking if you can transfer, you know, distribute that force over maybe a couple of piers. So if you do it over two piers, you then need to connect those two piers together so that they can share the force. And you do that in a in, a, in like a portal um, arrangement, a bit like a like a gantry over a motorway, that kind of um, sort of structure. But for Con Valley, we've sculpted those in such a way that they are a nice feature in themselves, and it is it can be seen as being like a gateway to uh, to something that is uniquely HS2 and identifiably HS2 but also very in keeping with the with the local landscape
creating a structure that flows, blends and somewhat celebrates the landscape has been a priority throughout the design process. But being beautiful is not enough. The team has also had to make sure that the project does not damage the sensitive local waterways in the Colne Valley. So you do need to consider the topography. You need to consider what obstacles we're crossing. There are lakes, but these are man-made lakes over many, many years. They're not natural formed lakes. The lakes are formed through gravel extraction in the ground. The Colne Valley landscape has been extensively altered over the past 200 years. The area would originally have comprised floodplain meadows, but a few of those remain. Sand and gravel were extensively extracted mainly between 1920 and 1940. Following this, many of the sites have been restored as wetlands. The local ground conditions here include chalk, which is overlain by gravels, which has been extracted, that has created these particular lakes. And the lakes are long in size, so unlike, say, very wide rivers, the lakes here are, the longest one is about 400 metres, and it ranges between 400 metres to 300 to 200 metres. So we need to place our uh, sporting piers in the water, and the intent really was that we consider minimising the intervention into the ground at that particular point. We are in, an, in a water aquifer as well, so water is extracted from the aquifer. So our intervention into the ground, or minimising that intervention, was essential for us to consider. And it's proven through our monitoring that we've had very limited or negligible impact of no concern to the water quality at all. And on top of this, efforts have been taken in conjunction with High Speed 2's innovation accelerator to reduce the carbon footprint of the structure. So what we have done here is we've used what is slag concrete, ground granulated blast uh, slag. So that is a cement replacement. The mix volumes of that are regulated to ensure that we can meet our specifications. This will be the largest UK use of ground granulated blast furnace slag. And when it is ground to a cement fineness, the blast furnace slag has good cement-like properties and can be used in combination with Portland cement to provide a strong concrete but with a lower carbon footprint. The whole viaduct is expected to complete in 2025, when the aligned joint venture will then hand it over to the fit-out contractor for the installation of the railway systems. When building such a major structure in a beautiful environment, it is really important to engage with the local community. And this is always a challenge while a project is ongoing, as people see all of the disruption but have yet to receive the benefit. Obviously, the local community don't necessarily see the benefit, direct benefit, and we appreciate and understand the impact on that community in relation to direct benefit. But clearly HS2 in itself is an infrastructure, a transportation infrastructure for the UK. It's going to benefit the UK citizens. It connects communities. Uh, it brings people together. So we had a wide-ranging engagement with the local community. We took their views on board in terms of what they considered is the impact on them. 
The design of the viaduct with its low profile and stone skipping flow helps bring a structure that fits with and some might say even enhances the countryside. But the construction process can be a blight on the local community and these projects take years to complete. The technology that we've used to construct the viaduct has minimized all of that. By engaging with the community, getting their viewpoints, being able to go back to that community and say, you said you wanted this and this is what we've done in response to you. The community's uh, acceptance of what we're doing has improved to the point where they're now comfortable with what we're doing. And over the next few years, the impact of the community will still be there. So I think, in short, the community is grateful that we've listened to them and that we've responded to their concerns and we are going to create a piece of infrastructure that I hope they'll get their watercolours out and be painting those over many years. For David, the project's lead bridge and viaduct engineer, the main satisfaction is in seeing a design that he really believed in being realised as intended. It didn't get compromised when it had to integrate with the real world. I get most of my satisfaction in this career out of seeing things that I've had an involvement in design-wise being built and, and being brought into public use. And it's it's wonderful to be able to see something that you've spent so long on not being changed too drastically, but uh, yeah, your, the vision that you had at that time materialising in, in reality. And there is also the legacy for a sector, a redemption for the segmental construction of bridges. I want a legacy out of this to be able to say, yes, the UK can do precast segmental construction. It needs to address these particular deficiencies that are the main reason for the moratorium. Um, and you can do that and get assurance of that by including the, the techniques and the design details that Align have already done. We've incorporated additional redundancy in the design um, and additional facilities to be able to top up that pre-stress if we need to. All of that will be written up in, in technical papers and presented you know, to, to the industry and be used to form the, the technical standards going forward. For Ludovic, the approach to the project has stood out, the adoption of an integrated team approach. For me, uh, it's the first time I experienced this kind of project where you are a fully integrated team that the clients and the main contractor us share the same office to work in an integrated team as you are, you are today. You remove a lot of stress and pressure on the production and you can focus 100% on the quality and safety of your personnel. And after, you can see that you are doing a very good job and you, what you are doing is exactly what you plan to do. Everyone is there to try to do something together. And this one for me is very appreciated. And for Billy, this is a project that feels like a true legacy of his professional life. For me, it's actually having a design that will stand out, not just for HS2, but for the UK and set a standard for similar high-speed rail around the world. Infrastructure like this lasts for hundreds of years and it's a legacy working around the globe and going back to the countries where we worked and seeing that infrastructure in use as David has expressed is extremely satisfying 
and it's the legacy that really helps. But legacy also helps to build and inspire the next generation. Bridges, unlike any other part of the project, have an opportunity to not hide themselves away, but instead celebrate HS2 and its engineered beauty. And here the engineers and architects have taken that opportunity by the horns, blending the latest engineering techniques with aesthetics to provide a new phase of beauty for the ever-changing Colm Valley. Next time on How to Build a Railway. We've got four great stations for phase one. So, and they're all very, very different. And that's because they're all in different places doing different things. There's one thing that Laura Kidd said when I first joined that has really stuck with me throughout was that the design vision principles that we have of people, place and time. From the very onset, we, we set out uh, BREAM Excellence, so the building research establishment, the category rating of excellent. We're, we're on course with, this, with the station design and the implementation to exceed that and, and achieve the outstanding rating. These are uh, structures, the, the assets that we're leaving, will have a long-term impact. You know, the expectations they'll last for 100 years more, 120 years. The deep box here is, is, is over 900 metres long, 70 metres wide and 20 metres deep, so it's an enormous structure to, to find in, in, um, in West London. <laughs> this amazing new park plaza that HS2 have designed as the main entrance space to the new station, which um, I'm told is going to be twice the size of Trafalgar Square. As we've uh, developed the design over the years, it's now much more of a a place, a real catalyst for development for, for the future. I mean, these are really big game-changing projects, which, as I say, have changed the face of their part of London. I think Old Oak and Park Royal is the next one of those game-changing projects. Your host has been me, Fran Scott. Thanks to our guests, Laura Kidd, Billy Alawalia, Ludovic Verne and David Smith. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.